0: Well, if you have your Bibles, and and if I could just get this turned down just a a little bit, it's just sort of, even though my voice is uh, really challenged, um, nevertheless, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. While you're turning, I just want to share very briefly how the Lord has blessed us, and just to give a a word of praise. I know that you've been praying for my Father and all of the uh, pressures that that has brought to bear on my own life. And he's in New Jersey, he's 90 something years old, long story made very short. He needed to find a home and uh, praise God that there was a subsidized housing facility that we were able to get him located into and settled in. And what was really neat was when he got into the apartment and he was with his uh, nephew that is in New Jersey, he had said, I have an apartment, but what do I do for furniture? And right next door, there was someone vacating the apartment, said, oh, I heard that you had some needs. What do you need? Well, he's got like a kitchen set. He's got like glasses and dishes. He's got a bedroom set. And so the Lord just provide him with everything. And the individual at the facility that had been the means by which all this came about, my father wanted to just give her a little something to thank her. And uh, she's a believer. I've had long conversations with her. She said, no, no, no I don't want anything. You're not going to take my blessing. And uh, she said, if you want to give me anything, you give me a hug. And so my father was hugging her. And anyway, he's settled. But that has been a major burden uh, off, of, off of my shoulders and off of my heart. So uh, I praise God for providing for that. The other is that we are full steam ahead with our home. It looks like we'll probably be moving in beginning of October, but we'll be closing in the beginning of September. So now we're getting settled in Southern California in a manner that we haven't been able to over the past two years. So we give praise to God for that as well. So now we move forward. You know, my mind is getting cleared of all this kind of stuff. And uh, now we have to listen to him for what his desire is for Beth Ariel. Now, if you turned with me to Isaiah chapter 2, the reason I had you turn there is because we're going through parts of our liturgy over the next few weeks and then into the High Holy Day services, and then shortly thereafter, I want to start a series, maybe about 16 weeks or so, on through the book of Daniel, and uh, some really wonderful things to learn there, not only about future events, but how do you live in a world where you are dominated by those who do not share the same values that we have. And given that this is an election year, we've got a presidential election coming up in a couple of months, right? Uh, What is this? September, September, October, November? What is it? Fourth or sixth? Fourth. Fourth. Sixth. It's... It's. Well, I'm very glad that our citizenship does not depend on knowing the date of the the presidential election. But uh, we want to remember, the book of Daniel is so great about this, that... Our trust is not in our government or in any individuals within our government, but our trust is always in the Lord and we must follow him. So uh, Daniel is a great, uh, great illustration of his faith in the Lord, despite the exile that he is serving under. Sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We're in exile, whether at our job because no one seems to identify with us or exile in our nation because we don't like some of the values and some of the things that are policies and laws in our country. And yet, nevertheless, it is on God's, uh, it is our hearts that are to rest in him and a trust in him and our minds are to be focused on him. But I want to turn to Isaiah 2 because another aspect of our liturgy, we looked at the candle lighting from Isaiah 11 a few weeks ago. But uh, then after we have our scripture reading, the first thing that we do is we pronounce a verse or we recite a verse taken from Isaiah chapter 2. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Ki mitzion torah, uh, for the Lord, because the Lord will go forth, will go out from Zion. Well, let's start at verse, two, uh, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream or flow to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears... In the pruning hooks, nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We read this passage because after we've read God's Word, we want to remember that God's Word flows from Himself. Now, this passage, of course, we sort of, well, maybe not sort of, we do take it out of context, right? When we read God's Word, it is the Word of the Lord. And it is His truths to us. It's not coming from Jerusalem or from Judah. It's coming from Los Angeles as we read God's Word here at Beth Ariel. But nevertheless, the passage reminds us that the Word of God is God's Word to us. And we are to listen to it. Not just listen to it, but we are to embrace it. We are to grasp it. Not only to understand it, but to cherish it. And to be determined to live our lives in light of its truths. Now, if we look at this passage in its context, it's talking about... The last days, as Isaiah is told. In the last days, this is what's going to take place. But take a look at verse 1. Literally in the Hebrew it says, The word was given to Isaiah, son of Amos, or what he saw. The word that Isaiah saw. That struck me. Because generally when we think of words, words are things we hear. But here in Isaiah, the word is something he saw. So for Isaiah, this is a vision. That God has given to him. Now, I am one that when I speak of visions or when I make reference to in the Word of God, I always want to caution us. Being a prophet was a unique calling among Israel and in the first century of the New Testament era. It's a unique calling. And when Isaiah is given this vision, this word that he saw, we don't know how he saw it. We know that he did not see it in a dream, for otherwise this text would have said, in a dream Isaiah saw. But he was not unconscious, as we might say, as we are, in dream state, but rather he was conscious. So how is it that God makes revelations known to his prophet while conscious? That's something we generally do not experience. That's something unique to the prophets of Israel and those made reference to in the New Testament where God provides revelation to His servant. He does not do that today. What He does today is He unfolds His Word to us. And His Word is the final arbiter of whatever experiences we might have. We might feel very deeply about something that God has shown us, whether in our sleep or in a state that we're really not sure how to describe or how to explain. But in the ultimate sense of the Word, Whatever we've seen, whatever we've heard, whatever we've felt deep inside, it must always be scrutinized by the revelation of God's Word. And therefore, none of us has a direct access to God. God told me this. God showed me this. And therefore, it is as if God himself has said, thus saith the Lord. When anyone comes to you and says that, you run. You you turn and run. Because you look at God's word, being a little, uh, you know, extreme, you don't have to run. But you can be kind and listen, but always be aware that we are fallible individuals. We are not prophets like Isaiah. Even when I proclaim my understanding of God's truth from this podium, from this platform, You must evaluate and think about what I have said and scrutinize it with the word of God. I do not come here and say, thus saith the Lord, this is the way it is. Unless God's word is crystal clear, such as there is no other name by which anyone might be saved but the name of Messiah. That is bottom line truth. I can say, thus saith the Lord, because the scripture says that, and it is certainly true. But when we have personal experiences, has just shared how God has placed on her heart. I have no doubt about that truth. But nevertheless, it must be scrutinized in accordance with God's word. And she does not know all the exact details about what is about to unfold as she heads to Phoenix. God has not made that crystal clear to her. And things may yet change. And things may have dips in the road and turns that are not anticipated. And thus we need to walk with him each and every day. And the word of God must be our guide. And it must be our revelation of God and his his word to us. So when I read those words, I'm just struck though how it says that the word is something that Isaiah saw. I would have liked to have heard or read Isaiah say, the word that I heard as God spoke to me. But he says, the word that I saw as God revealed this matter and this truth to him. There's another interesting thing. If you notice, it says that in the last days, in the end of time. When the Messiah is going to arrive and he's going to come in all of his glory, not at his first coming, but at his second coming, when he comes in glory to reign as king, that's what the last days refers to. Well, we know that because the context reveals it here very clearly. If you look at verse 4, he's going to have such an impact on the world that nations will not take up sword against the nation. Until that happens, we're not in the latter days as Isaiah has said. Nations continue to be in conflict with each other. Why? We're not in these latter days as Isaiah is referring to them. The latter days, by his understanding, is the days when the Messiah arises and when peace will permeate our world. Put another way, he has told us it'll be a time when the temple of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord will be the highest of the temples uh, of the mountains. It will be established. And what I find really interesting here is how he speaks about the nations flowing to it. That also is kind of odd to me, because when you think of flowing, you think of water. You think of streams, and the Hebrew word here means streaming, flowing in like water or river flows, but water flows down, not up, and so the imagery that Isaiah sees is just contrary to our own experience. He's seeing people like rivers flowing up to the mountain of the Lord. The imagery then is meant to capture that there are so many people going that it's flooding upward and it's sort of overtaking everything. And thus, there are many nations, many different people groups, Jews included, of course, going up to worship the Lord. And He is the focus. I can't help but think if it was me, I might say, let's go up to the temple of the Lord because what a view it must be from that highest of heights. But that's not why they're going. They're not going to see the temple as magnificent as it will be. If I'm not mistaken, and I may be mistaken on this, if you look at the latter chapters of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel tells us about the temple, which if I'm not misunderstanding the text, I believe it tells us the temple will be a mile square sitting atop of the highest mountain of the world. And that from the temple, mount, a river of life is going to flow out from the throne of God. And as it descends down the mountain and from Jerusalem, which is at the height of the mountains, it's going to flow east and west. It's going to flow west toward the Mediterranean and east toward the Dead Sea. And Ezekiel tells us the Dead Sea, which has become a body of water within which there is no life, will be transformed and changed. And at that time, it will be a place, Ezekiel says, for fishermen to spread their, net, their nets. Out from the very throne of God, life flows. It flows in this river and it brings life to everything that it has contact with. And while this water is flowing down, flowing up to Jerusalem and into the temple are the nations of the world. And they've gathered for one purpose, to see God, to meet Him, and to listen to Him. The text tells us they want to go up to this mountain that is raised above the hills. Nations are flowing and streaming. And they're not only doing this, but look at verse 3. They're inviting others to come with them, right? They say, come, let us go up. To the mountain it isn't you need to go but they're on their way and as they're going they're bringing people with them and they're saying let us go up to the mountain why? because he said it says to the house of the God of Jacob because he will teach us his ways the law will go forth from him he will judge, he will settle all disputes and whatever problems there are he will bring peace. To each and every one. No longer will problems attempt to be solved by war. No longer will there be the enemies of one another, but rather, with whatever disagreements we may have, we bring it before the Lord of the universe, for the, before the Messiah of Israel, and He will judge among the nations, and the result will be peace, harmony, unity, and prosperity for all. That is the day we look forward to. That is the day that John has told us, even so, come, Lord Yeshua. But the effects of God's word can have a great influence and effect upon our lives even today. We go up to the mountain, according to Isaiah 2, because God is now going to teach us his word. And God's law will go forth. I don't think he's referring specifically to the 613 commandments. But God's law for the kingdom will be shared and will be presented and instruction will come from Him. And so a number of things strike me about this passage in a more practical manner. The first is this. Just as during the kingdom reign of Messiah, there are those that are saying, come, let us go up to the mountain that we might encounter God. We are to be about bringing others up into the presence of God with us today. If in the kingdom that is going to be what characterizes the people who worship God, how could it do any less for us today? We too should be characterized as ones. As we come up to worship the Lord here at Beth Ariel, we ought to be ones who are characterized as saying, come, let us go up together. We ought to be inviting those who are lost, who are in need of hearing the word of God, not just to go, not just to read, but to come with us and come and worship the Lord together. It isn't just about what they hear from the pulpit, although I'm a big uh, supporter and believer that this is critical business up here but it is also about what we as a congregation present before all who come into our body, whether they are new or whether they've been here for decades. We have a ministry one to the other as worshipers together. And therefore, worship is a critical experience every time we come together to worship Him, be it on Sunday, be it during one of our special events holy day services coming up in september be it at our seder be it at any place where we congregate to worship the lord that is serious business and we need to come with a sense that lord we're coming before you to give you all the glory and the praise and so when we come know that what you do is critically important to the person you're sitting next to Know that it's critically important to the people who are up here who are looking out, gazing upon you. Know that what we do is critically important for those that we see in the pews. And know that together as one congregation, it's critically important into the very presence of God. For we want to bring him our praise. We want to bring him our concerns and our needs. We want to bring him our life and say, take my life and let it be, whatever you would have for us and wherever you would have us serve you. So when I look at this verse, yes, I could look into the far-flung future and say one day this is going to be the tallest mountain in the world. One day nations will flow into it. And I could, we could leave it at that and simply rejoice. But I think Isaiah would want more and I think the Lord would too. He would want us to be bringers of others into his presence. And therefore, Messiah would leave us with the final commission to go into all the world and to proclaim his good news. But not just proclaim it. He says, make disciples of all nations. That is our job, each and every one of us. Are we discipling others? It begins by bringing them with you into the presence of God to worship him to praise him to learn from him and to learn together. The second thing that strikes me is that as a student of God's word, which we all are, we are disciples, another way of saying we are pupils. We are students of God and we are students of his word and we are students together as it were in God's classroom. Ultimately, he is our instructor. Ultimately, He unfolds His Word to us. Yes, He's granted gifts of teaching to others, none of whom are infallible. But ultimately, it is God who is teaching through us and who is sharing with each of us as we share with one another what we've learned, what we've discovered, what we've encountered in God's Word, what has been impressed on our heart through the study of God's Word. So a second thing that strikes me is we need to take studying the Word of God seriously. I don't mean just reading the Word of God. I don't mean just having a regular regiment whereby we read through the Bible in a year and think that after we have done that, we have done our duty, as it were. What I mean is we need to be ones who ponder God's Word, who reflect on God's Word, who purchase commentaries and learn what some individuals who have been granted the gifts of teaching and have had opportunity to gain the skills that none of us have to give us better understanding of the meaning and significance of God's Word. That means that it takes time to do that. We cannot shuffle about through our lives and expect to be ones who are going to learn from God's Word. In order to learn from God's Word and to learn from Him will take time. All of us have spent at least 13 years going from kindergarten to high school. And at the end of the day, there's still a whole lot to learn after you've graduated high school. And some of us have had opportunity to go to college, or maybe graduate school, and maybe added a number of other letters after our name as we've gone on for doctoral studies. And yet at the end of the day, when all that is over, we realize all I've learned is how much more I need to learn. And none of us has arrived in our learning. All of us are ongoing students, and it will be so for all, as much as we may not like this, all of eternity. There will never be a time where we will say, I got it. <laughs> there will always be a time when we're going to need to say, what else do I need to understand? And when we get to that point, we'll only have just begun as Amazing Grace, the hymn says, will only be at the very threshold of what it means to know God. One of my favorite books is J.I. Packer's Knowing God. But what a title. <laughs> you know That just does not happen completely ever because God is all-knowing and infinite. We will never be infinite and we will never be all-anything will always be ones who are created in the image of God. That will be servants and that will be learners of Him. So you can either start on the other side of this life or you can start now. But it will be, for each and every one of us, a learning for all of eternity. The sooner we get started, the further along we will be. And the sooner we get started, the greater our understanding, to whatever degree we can attain it, will be the knowledge of God. And life starts there, doesn't it? I mean, that's what Proverbs tells us. The beginning of wisdom is the knowledge of God. It is Him that we must come to know. This has been impressing itself on me some as I've been teaching at Shalom Fellowship uh, on Friday evenings. We sort of content ourselves with the notion that we've done our duty to pray as often as we do and we feel we've completed what we need to do when we've prayed each and every day, when we've read God's Word each and every day. But what God is after is not our duties. He's after you. He's after a relationship with you. And we can never reduce a relationship with him or anyone else to merely the things we do. There must be a desire that wells up inside for him, like the deer panting after the water brooks, so my soul pants for you. And thus that's what draws us and brings us to prayer or to study. It doesn't work the other way. It's a desire for him that leads us to him. And how how are we led to him? through prayer, reflection, the study of His Word, and other things. Remember what Messiah said about the scribes and the Pharisees. He was saying that the difficulty with them is that they reduced a relationship to God to the way in which they understood the commandments to be observed. And in doing so, Messiah said some of the worst things to these religious individuals. When he says things like, you are whitewashed sepulchers. You look great every Tuesday and Thursday fasting. Every time you can be in the synagogue, you're there. On the outside to each and every other person, look whitewashed. But inside was a deadness because all of the things they were doing was not the result of an intimate relationship with the living God. That's something we always have to work on. And even though Messiah condemns or uh, speaks such to the scribes and Pharisees of his day, I wonder to how many of us in our local assemblies, our churches, our messianic congregations, he would be saying the very same things. And I wonder how often he would be saying it to me. And it's something that we need to take very seriously because the Lord is one that desires our hearts and not just our our external veneer of religiosity. Your hearts, he says, are far from me. And so we need to draw to him. We need to bring others to him. We need to be brought to him ourselves. We need to study his word and envelop ourselves in it and immerse ourselves in its truths, as he says. And one last thing, let me just conclude here. I love that Isaiah, and he does this very often, says, the nations of the world flow up into the mountain of the Lord. He could have said the Jewish people flowing up, but what Isaiah sees is not just his own people, though he does see them, but he sees all the nations of the world, Jews and Gentiles together, coming up into the very presence of God himself to worship him and to praise him. At Shalom Fellowship, we were looking at the passage in Mark. And in Mark, I think we were in chapter 11 or so, when Messiah enters the temple, just before he would give his life a ransom for many as a final atonement. He enters the temple compound area. And when you enter the temple, the first place you entered was the court of the Gentiles, the largest court in the temple compound and the temple complex. From there, you would enter into the temple area proper, the court of the women, and then the court of the Israelites, or the court of the men. But the largest court was the outside court, which was the court of the Gentiles. And when he went in, and by the way, archeologists are discovering all outside the walls of Jerusalem, the stalls, where there would have been shops, where animals would have been kept because when you came into the temple to offer up a sacrifice, you couldn't just bring your own animal. Well, you may try, but then your animal would be inspected and if there was some blemish or some uh, disfiguration, uh, those that were evaluating your animal would say, you know, it's a nice sheep, but you can't offer them here at the temple because whatever deformity they find. So you'll have to purchase one of our lambs in order to sacrifice. And thus, many were making a profit off of God's commandments and the needs of the people. If you brought money to give to the temple treasury, you couldn't just bring a Roman coin or a coin from whatever country you happened to come from. Because remember, three times a year, Jews from all over the world would come into Jerusalem. So you had to change your whatever currency it was, into temple currency. And of course, the exchange rate was in the favor of those that were changing your coin to temple coinage. So there's a lot of business dealings going on in the court of the Gentiles people are haggling. What do you mean there's something wrong with this sheep? What do you mean there's something wrong with this lamb? I should get a little bit more temple coinage than what you've given me. And you can imagine all of the stalls, all of the places, all the tables where that is going on. And then you remember that there's all these animals that are kind of making their noise and whatever they're doing. Uh, Someone has said, think of the court of the Gentiles And by the way, Josephus says on one Passover, 255,000 lambs were offered in the temple. I mean, that's a a lot of anything, let alone sheep. And so someone has said, imagine being on Wall Street at lunch. I don't know if you've ever gone down to Wall Street, ever had an opportunity, but I remember times we'd hand out tracts on Wall Street around 12, 12, 1 o'clock lunchtime. There's a million people at that intersection. So we'd stand there and we'd have, everyone gets one, no one gets left out, it's free here, take it, you want. And in 10 minutes, 50,000 pieces of literature are gone. There's just so many people. Imagine being at Wall Street or in the stock exchange and then add animals to it. That's, that's the court of the Gentiles. And the Messiah stands up and he shouts out, you have made this place a den of thieves. My house should be a house. Get this. My house, Isaiah 56, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations. What is he saying? How in the world are the Gentiles supposed to hear the voice of God to be able to pray, study, and hear God's Word with all this stuff going on? With all this cacophony happening? With all this confusion? The Gentiles are supposed to learn of God. And when they enter the court of the Gentiles, where t- Solomon's court, Solomon's portico, Solomon's, what was it called? Solomon's, what is it called? Colonnade. That's where the teaching went on. It's the court of the Gentiles so that they would learn the truth of God. That they would come up to the mountain, as Isaiah says, and to learn of His ways. Well, Isaiah, uh, Messiah is saying, how are they supposed to do that when you've done this, to their court where they can come up. He leaves because it was getting late. And the next day he comes back. As he comes back, he sees that fig tree. And he notices on the fig tree that there are multiple of leaves. And having leaves on this particular kind of fig tree that's germane to Israel, there would be little nodules before the figs themselves come There are little nodules that can be eaten and provide sugar, some nourishment. So Messiah draws up to the tree expecting there to be these little nodules that he could eat from and be strengthened as he would enter the temple for the second time. And when he sees the the tree, he says there's no nodules on it. There's plenty of leaves, but there aren't these early fruit buds, as it were. What does it mean? It means the fig tree was diseased. didn't look that way from outside, but there was something wrong inside. And thus it wasn't behaving as a fig tree ought to behave. It wasn't producing the fruit that it was supposed to produce. So that's really what's wrong with us as human beings. We look okay to each other, you know, for the most part. But inside... We are dead in trespasses and sins. Messiah has come that we would have life, have it more abundantly. That doesn't mean to have a more successful life. It doesn't mean to have a more joyous life in the sense that all of our problems would dissipate. What it means is is that we would have a fruitful life. We would have a meaningful life. Life Meaningful not in the way that we understand it. Meaningful in the sense of doing the will of God. In other words, a man like Ezekiel was fulfilling the will of God when he was told to go and preach to a people who wouldn't listen. From our perspective, we'd say, what a failure Ezekiel is. He better practice his preaching, his proclaiming, his writing, because no one's listening to him, so he must not be doing a good job. But from God's perspective, he was doing a perfect job. He was telling him, I want you to proclaim my truth to my people, but they're not going to listen to you. And if it was me, I would say, well, why should I go? And the Lord would say, because I told you. That's what I want you to do. If you want to have a fruitful life, you just do what I ask. Do what I tell you. Don't worry about the results. That's my job. They're not going to respond, but you better respond. And your response is the proclamation of my truth to those who will not respond. So therefore, having fruit is not being successful. It's not being happy. It's not having all of our cares somehow dissipate and then life becomes easy. Yeshua himself says, Blessed are the persecuted. Messiah himself said, I came to die. Not just a death, a violent death, a suffering death. Why should we think our life should be any different than the one whom we are following? But to have a meaningful, fruitful, purposeful life, well, that's a whole other story. And so what Messiah wants from us is that our life would be a life lived in devotion and in intimacy with him day by day, moment by moment, as best of our ability to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. So when he sees that tree, he doesn't see the fruit. Remember what Messiah says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear fruit. You will bear much fruit. You will bear more fruit. You will bear fruit that will last in John 15. That's what God is after in our lives. Well, What does that mean? It means being like Messiah, being conformed into his image. The life of Messiah lived in and through us. And that is what God desires for each and every one. We've got a lot of theology wrong, a lot of doctrine wrong. We've got a lot of things wrong, each and every one of us, even those of us who believe we got it right. But the one thing God wants is not accuracy in every aspect, though he does want us to attempt to approach it. But he does want Messiah's life lived in and through us. Remember what Isaiah says. Why are we going up? To learn. Why do we want to learn? To walk in his ways, Isaiah says. So he doesn't find the fruit on the tree because the fig tree was diseased inside. And thus it is cursed and judged. God has to root out what is needful to be rooted out within, to be addressed, to be atoned for, and then to receive His Spirit so as to be empowered to live that life unto Him. That is why He came, that He would live in and through us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. We are the very place in which God now has chosen to dwell. If we were with Israel in the wilderness wandering, we'd see the cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, and we would say, where is God? Well, I could see a manifestation of him right there. When the tabernacle was built, he inhabited the holy of holies in the tabernacle. If someone asks, where is God? Well, there's the manifestation of his presence right there. And now Paul says, we collectively, he uses a collective, not just individually, collectively, we are temples, tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. People should say, do you want to know where God is? Let me show you. And they open the doors and they're pointing at us. That's where he dwells, in our midst. And thus, from Isaiah's perspective, we want to go up to the Lord and bring the nations with us. Why? Because we are the very embodiment of God's presence. I'm not saying we are God. Please don't misunderstand me. But what I'm saying is God dwells in us by his spirit. And thus we are a localization of his presence on earth right now. So when we come, we want to go up to the mountain to worship him for his presence within us, his spirit within us, is desiring of wor- enabling us to worship him. We don't have to do it all right. You know, we can miss some chords. We can sing a little off-key, although that'll get somebody next to you a little, you know, a little whatever. You can sing a little off-key. You can clap a little bit out of beat. But we are to be praisers of God, worshipers of Him, and that's a part, not the whole, but it's a part of what it means to worship Him. We're to be evangelists, where we are proclaiming the good news and saying, come, let us together go up. We need to be telling others of the good news and of the marvelous love and grace of God that is amazing and unbounded and is extended to everyone who would receive it. So we want to bring others with us and to bring others to Him that they may worship Him. We want to be students of God's Word for He is our ultimate teacher. And we want to learn what his word teaches us so that we might walk in his ways. And in walking in his ways, we are not like the fig tree that had manifestation of leaves and no fruit. We want to walk in his ways so that we would be bearers of fruit that will last. That is compelling for people, don't you, think? don't you think? If people saw that, they would say, I need fruit in my life. I need life that I've not had before. I need to worship. We're all created with this, remember? We're all created in the image of God. We all want to worship. We all are worshiping something. It'd be great to help people worship the right one and not just things that they think are right. Father, we thank